Thank you for calling Gay Wire. Your call is very important to us. Press 1 for fourth wave feminism. Press 2 for a strangely in-depth discussion about where the worms have gone. Press 3 for... You have chosen option 3. Please stay on the line. Thank you for choosing option three. Hello and welcome to Gay Wire, where everything is at least a little bit queer. I'm Terrence, and my pronouns are he and they. And I'm Caden, and my pronouns are she, her. We're coming at you from CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton, which is on Treaty 6 territory. This week, I spoke with Erin Gallagher Cahoon from Queen's University about her research into the history of queer parenting in Canada. Let's cue it up. I'm Erin Gallagher Cahoon, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Queen's University. Managing my own research project, my own history related research project, um, and writing my dissertation. So, my dissertation is a history of uh, the history of queer families and queer family formations in Canada um, from about 1970 onwards, uh, 1970 to about 2005 is the, the time period that I'm looking at. So broadly speaking, I'm looking at uh, legal history of queer families. So uh, from about 19, the early 1970s onwards, I'm looking at divorce and custody cases that, that involved a gay or lesbian parent or where someone was accused of being gay or lesbian. Um, and how sexuality was used within the court, how it was discussed, um, and, and cases where parents uh, lost custody or access to their children because of their sexuality. So that's sort of one area of research that I'm looking at, the, the more legal history. Um, and then I'm also looking at histories of activism coming out of uh, some of those custody cases. There were, unsurprisingly, uh, groups and people uh, who saw this as an injustice and decided to do something about it. So both uh, queer parents who became activists as well as queer activists who took on the issue of parenting rights and developed different activist groups and organizations. Gay Fathers of Toronto, um, there were also across Canada in a couple of places, there were lesbian mothers defense funds. So I'm looking at the history of activism through those, those types of groups. Um, and then I'm also going to be looking at histories around adoption and fostering. In all of these sort of broad topics, I'm, I'm also, I'm talking to people, I'm doing oral history interviews, uh, which is probably the most enjoyable part of my research is to be able to actually connect with people and, and hear their individual personal stories. That's a very broad scope. You've got, you've got a lot going on there. Yeah. <laughs> when when did you start researching this? And like, was this your first topic? And how did you how did you end up where you are now? Uh, so I've only been doing research focused on this specific topic in history for for three years now. 
Um, prior to that, in my master's, uh, I was doing a thesis that uh, was a history of medicine, um, completely unrelated to this topic. I was doing something completely different. Um, but coming out of my master's, I was, I was really not sure if I wanted to continue in grad school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And it wasn't until I realized that, um, that this topic was, was ready to be researched, that not many people had written much on it, uh, that there was a history here to tell, um, that I decided to go back to grad school specifically to be able to do this research project. It was really important to me. Um, as someone who grew up with gay dads, it was really important that these stories be told um, and, and that they be told from the discipline of history. The fact um, that there is a history here and that there have been previous generations of families that often without government support, you know, prior to same-sex marriage being legalized, prior to even um, adoption rights being, being allowed to same-sex couples. Um, so prior to all of these things being legalized and, and the government saying, okay, like queer families are okay, queer families still existed and still managed to thrive. Um, and, and I think there's uh, often a sense that queer families are sort of this modern invention that don't have a history. So it was really important to me to be able to tell these stories from using a historical lens um, to show just the, the vibrancy of queer families, even prior to there being any sort of support, social or um, legal support for their existence. What made you realize that there, there was a history here to tell? Well, partly personal experience. My dad came out in 1999. Um, my parents got divorced and my dad came out um, and he, uh, he met his partner around the same time. Um, and so when I, was, when I was young, growing up, I didn't know any other families like mine. Um, it felt very isolating, but because I knew that I had existed, I knew that others must have also existed. And then from there, it was sort of just talking to, to other people. And eventually, uh, this was not necessarily when, when I was a child. Like I said, I, I did feel quite isolated when I was young. But eventually, meeting other people who were a little bit older than me, who also grew up with queer parents and realizing that there, there were these previous generations, like I said, of queer families. Um, and that was a really important realization for me as a young adult. Uh, it sort of helped um, soothe some of the isolation that, that I felt as a younger child, knowing that we had a place in Canadian history. And yeah, just feeling sort of more connected to a larger community and a community that crossed time was a really important thing for me as a young adult. And so that's part of, that's not part of, that's a very large motivation for this work and for this research is the hope that uh, as I figure out how to tell these stories in various formats, like talking to you, 
um, that someone out there who maybe needs to hear these stories might be listening and might feel slightly less isolated as a result. That's, that's again, I, I love that. So back to your research, um, to your findings. So you looked at legal court cases. Could you tell me a little bit about those? Yeah, so um, so I should I should say, like I said, I'm in my third year of this research. So I'm sort of right in the middle of the research. So there's still a lot that I um, I, I want to be able to look at. But this is this is actually a, a good topic to start with because the custody cases is what I'm I'm currently writing about. So yeah, the the earliest case in uh, the earliest published record um, in Canadian uh, custody law that explicitly deals with um, this case was a lesbian mother was in 1974. The mother lost custody of her child, um, unfortunately, and sexuality was absolutely part of the reason for that. So one of the things that you see in a lot of these cases is judges have concerns, especially early in the 1970s and 1980s, judges have concerns that a parent's sexuality is somehow going to be harmful to the child, that it's going to harm their psychosexual development, um, there's even concerns about how a kid is going to be bullied at school if they have a gay parent. Um, so they use the excuse of, of societal homophobia to then take custody away from queer parents in this really, you know, really tragic irony that, you know, homophobia is being acknowledged, but then it's being used as a reason to dismantle queer families. So there's all these concerns that judges have around sexuality and how it's going to impact a kid's life. And there's an assumption that the impact is going to be negative. Um, One of the big fears is that gay parents will raise gay kids. And this is presented as a negative thing. Um, You know, there's no celebration of this multi-generational queer families might actually be a really positive thing. That's not how it's being presented. Um, It's being presented as we need to take these kids out of these queer environments and uh, put them in quote unquote more normal family homes so that they don't themselves turn out to be queer. So this first chapter that I'm writing on this legal history of custody cases is actually in some ways for me, it's very emotional, it's very hard uh, to be reading these cases of um, queer families being dismantled by, by the law. Even in cases where queer parents manage to maintain custody or access, the, the reasons that judges are giving can be quite hard. So Parents who are discreet, that's the vocabulary that's used in all of these terms, is um, if they're not out, if they're they're not public, um, if they're not activists, then they have a much better chance of maintaining custody of their children. And uh, and so even in the cases where um, that can be seen as individual victories, that, that queer families are able to stay together, they still are hard to read because of the reasons that judges are giving um, and the sort of underlying assumptions that you can really see in these verdicts. So so yeah, it's 
I'm, I'm getting emotional, a little bit emotional here talking about it. It's, it's hard to read and then it's hard to really grapple with the, the layers of homophobia in the legal system that are at play here and to try to, to, try to analyze that and then write about it um, and figure out and place it within this larger context as well, because obviously uh, this legal system was working within a larger society that also had all these assumptions about um, gay people and the potential harms that might occur if, especially if gay fathers were uh, in close relationship with children, like gay, like the stereotypes around gay men and children really play out in the cases that involve gay fathers. What, what have you found that this is saying about Canada's history of discrimination towards <laughs> queer people? How, how's Canada doing? And uh, is there any way to recover? Oh, is there any way to recover? So unsurprisingly, uh, Canada has a history of discrimination against gay people. I don't think that's going to shock anyone for me to say that. Um, it's certainly not all rainbows and pride celebrations. And one of the things that I think my research really does push back against is this whole celebration around the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2005. The way Canada has sort of tried to position itself as sort of uh, very progressive when it comes to gay rights because we were one of the first countries to legalize same-sex marriage. And, you know, we can think of sort of the performance of um, the celebration around um, Canada's progressiveness when it comes to same-sex rights um, in terms of, you know, Trudeau's apology, for example. So there, there's Canada recently, it seems, um, maybe in the last decade, uh, has really sort of played up this celebration of how progressive we've been in terms of uh, extending, uh, benevolently extending these rights to LGBTQ communities. And I, I think um, that downplays a lot, that downplays a lot of history, but I think it's also looking at things in a very top-down manner. Like I said, something that, that I really want my, my research to show is that in the history, even under legal systems that were really actively trying to uh, prevent queer families from existing, queer families continued to exist. We have in, in Canada, as, um, as in all countries probably, but certainly in Canada, we have this long history of, of legal discrimination against queer folk. And I don't think the celebration should be that the government finally gave some rights. I think the celebration should be about how people and communities and families and chosen families really are able to um, develop alternative, really joyful relationships outside of and in spite of the the homophobia that exists um, at multiple levels, whether we're talking about the the legal system, the government, or just wider society, right? And those are those are the stories that uh, I I really think we need to be hearing more of. Is just the 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 joy and the the vibrancy, the alternative systems, the alternatives 
to um, to what the government deems is okay and that they're willing to accept. I think we need to be talking about alternatives more than than maybe I'm I'm hearing happen in in certainly the mainstream uh, sort of press. Oh, absolutely. And um, I I love the idea of queer joy as a, a form of resistance. And you mentioned that you've also been looking into um, cases where parents have been involved in activism. So yeah, there's there's this this amazing history of queer parenting activism in Canada uh, that uh, not many historians have actually written about. So there, there were a few big organizations. Uh, I already mentioned Gay Fathers of Toronto and the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund. Um, the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund is a really interesting group that grew out of a lesbian feminist community uh, wages do lesbians. Um, and in Toronto, they were all uh, women who, who started les the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund were actually not mothers themselves. They were these lesbian feminists um, who were involved in multiple different, um, you know, sort of radical lesbian activism. And uh, they, they realized that um, there was this whole other segment of lesbians who often were married, were, were often in heterosexual marriages, often had children, and until they weren't scared of losing their children, they were not going to necessarily feel at liberty to come out. And so there was this whole mass of lesbians that were not coming out and that were not joining queer activist groups uh, and that were not bringing that, that energy into queer communities. And so it was these, these women who were not themselves mothers who realized that this was, this was a, an important barrier to some women coming out. And so they took up the cause. The women who'd often talk to the media, who would allow their names to be used, those were often not mothers themselves. They were, they were women who felt they had the ability to be more out than others. And so you had you had some of the, the women in the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund were not mothers, and they were the ones often being very vocal in the media about the issues. And then you also had the women who were mothers often going through custody battles themselves. And they had to often be very careful um, and not use their names. And so in, in some of the documentation that I that I look at, um, there's a, there's a lot of uh, redaction of information. So that's a really interesting dynamic, I think, the ways in which uh, lesbians who were not mothers were taking up the cause of lesbians who were mothers because they realized that there was this, this potential community there um, and they really wanted to allow these lesbian mothers uh, the ability to come out and be part of the community. So the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund, the history there is, is, one of my, is one of my personal favorite case studies. And I'm really, really excited to be able to dig more into that. Yeah. Um, what do you hope that people can learn from your research? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've said a little bit some of my big hopes for the project. So I hope that it really can emphasize 
the queer joy, like we were talking about before, the ways in which queer families and larger queer communities could really thrive, even, even under systems that were quite oppressive. I don't want to downplay the tragedies either. I don't want to downplay the way it must have felt for a parent to lose custody of a child because of their sexuality. I do think there are a lot of a lot of stories, really tragic stories that have not been told. I don't want to downplay the tragedies, but I I also don't want to make this story about tragedy. There is a lot of joy as well. You know, there, there are a lot of stories of, you know, if I can if I can talk about the oral histories for a second, because that's where a lot of this really comes out, connecting to parents, connecting to queer spawn, kids who grew up with queer parents has been really, really meaningful for me on a personal level and has been absolutely necessary for the research that I'm doing. And the oral histories really are this perfect example of the ways in which people's lives are a blend of tragedy and joy, right? In the same, when I'm talking to someone in the same oral interview, we can we can go across so many different topics. Um, and I've, I've been really really honored that people have been willing to open up so much of their personal lives to me. Uh, but these these oral stories can can go across, you know, the absolute joy and amazement of watching your partner give birth, for example, um, into, uh, you know, yeah, really hard parts about divorce and 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 custody. Um, you know, really harsh things that family members have said or losing um, members of your, your birth family because of coming out. Um, and, and, you know, one of my favorite things is talking to parents, especially just the ways in which they can light up while talking about their children. That crosses so many different barriers, just the love and joy and pride that people take in their children. Talking to an older generation of queer folk, they realize that it was a privilege for them to be in a parenting relationship with a child. That's not something they take for granted. It wasn't always easy necessarily. You know, there's cases where where early on, uh, you know, uh, I'm thinking of one story right now where I was talking to a lesbian mom who, um, whose partner uh, and her decided to have a child. And so they, she was telling me the story of how they had to go around finding sperm and how do you actually find sperm when, uh, you know, prior to sperm banks uh, allowing lesbian or even single women to use their services um, and so some of the sometimes funny stories of just like finding sperm as a lesbian couple right there were sometimes some challenges to even building a queer family um, and so they don't they don't take that for granted and there there is this real sense of the um the joy that they that they got to uh, experience parenting and that they they had a child um, and now often an adult child in their lives and those those are stories that um, don't always translate well to the page uh, definitely not to academic writing 
And so I'm going to have to figure out how to either write that into my dissertation or find other other avenues to tell those stories because there's something really um something really important about that intimate level of joy yeah and so you mentioned to me before the interview that recently your research has become uh much more important to you uh would you mind elaborating on that yeah obviously it's always been important it's always been very personal to me uh, which is one of the strengths, I think, of this research and certainly something that keeps me going and keeps me motivated, but uh, also has its own unique challenges when you are so closely connected to the research that you're doing. I apologize if I get emotional here. Um, so yeah, a year and a half ago, one of my dads was diagnosed with cancer and he recently passed away, which has made the last year and a half of research very difficult uh, emotionally for me. It is a different experience to be experiencing a family illness like that um, at the same time as, you know, reading cases of family breakdown and queer parents losing custody of their family. Like I found myself reacting to the, the tragedies that I was reading about much more emotionally because of my own family situation and uh, what was happening within my own family. So one of the unique challenges that I was talking about in terms of doing this type of research that, that so directly hits very close to home um, is the allowing other people's stories to really have space to talk on their own and not making it too much about your own grief or what I was going through and going through. And so I, I do have to constantly remind myself that I can suspect a lot about how people were feeling, but not to read too much of my own emotion into the stories that I'm hearing to give people's stories um, the respect that they deserve and allow them to speak for themselves. And certainly in the last year and a half, it has really been brought home to me how important this research is. Robert, who was uh, my dad's partner for the last 21 years, um, and you know my second father, um, he was the one who passed away recently. He was um, a, a huge supporter of my work. He was, he was very interested in queer history. And I really, I really wish that I had been able to show him the end results of my research. And unfortunately, he's not going to be able to see the end results. And so it's become even more important to me than than it was before, that I do pursue this research, but that also it not just stay within academia, that it not just be a PhD dissertation that I write and then sits on the shelf somewhere, that it be something that um, I figure out a way to really be telling these stories more broadly and get them to people um, like Robert, who would not have necessarily been reading academic papers, uh, but was very interested in this research. Um, so finding a way to give these stories back to the families and the communities that are sharing them with me is extremely important and was always important, but the last year of Robert's life has just really reminded me of that importance. 
That was Erin Gallagher Cahoon speaking with me about her research into the history of queer parenting in Canada. I think one of my favorite things that Erin said was how even though there has been a lot of tragedy in these stories, there's joy. And in that joy, specifically in that queer joy, there is resistance. And that is all the time we have for today. Today's sh uh, show wouldn't have been made possible without the support from uh, the, our team, Shana Giles, Jao Victor Krieger, Ash Alinda, and us, Caden Peasley, and Terrence Adams. Gaywire is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. You can find us online at gaywire.transistor.fm and on Facebook or Twitter at Gaywire and at GaywireCJSR on Instagram and TikTok. Let us know what you think of the show, hit up the DMs sometime, or if you'd rather be fancy, you can also email gaywire at cjsr.com and you never know, you just might get to be a part of the show. Our artwork is by Travis Erickson. Oh my God. Our artwork is by Travis Erickson. Original music by Doug Hoyer and Katherine Hiltz. Until next week, stay jeezy and- Please stay on the line.